calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Good day, good people. This is Brad King, and you are listening to the Downtown Writers Jam podcast. Today on the show is author, novelist, Abigail Mann, whose first book is out. It's called The Lonely Fajita. It is available right now just as an ebook. It'll be coming out in print in January because this is the world that we live in now. Hope you guys are doing well. Um, I'm going to forego some of the stuff that I normally do here at the beginning of the show. We can get to that later because it has been a tough few weeks. Weeks? Maybe it last, maybe just a week. With the protests going on across the country and everything happening, it is difficult to know exactly how to respond Some things are very easy to figure out. Black Lives Matter, simple, right? That's, that should not be something that is difficult for us to understand. But sitting around and thinking and talking with writers and authors, as I do, both for my job and here, so many of us are struggling with these issues that are bubbling up now, some race, some class, some gender, some across everything, sexuality, all of these things, right? Like, everybody, every author that I talk to is coming at the world through whatever lens that they came through it in. And so far, in the pandemic season, everybody has had this empathy, both for themselves and trying to understand sort of their own internal damage that you have to sit with over 90 days, and then some of it is structural and things that they're looking around and seeing. And I can't tell you how many times I have discussions with people. And I, if you've listened to the show, you know, when you're talking about your life, which is what we do here, invariably those things in your life come up, race, class, gender, sexuality, these kinds of things. So 
when I think about the show and what I think about we're doing here, I am heartened by the fact that I don't feel like what is happening in the world is forcing me to change what I'm doing with the program. I feel like what I was trying to do with the program and what I'll continue to try to do and what I'll try to continue to get better at doing is sitting down with people from as many walks of life as I can find. I am genuinely interested in people, and that's why I like doing the show. I am also cognizant of my own privilege. I don't talk about that a lot, but this is certainly a thing that has been a part of my writing and been a part of my public life, struggling with those kinds of things. Um, And so... I feel good that I haven't had to change the way I interview people, the way I interact, the way that I talk, the kinds of guests that I have on the program. But all of us are struggling trying to figure out what is the right way through this. And many of the people, just by happenstance, have ended up being people around my generation. There's been a few folks that were younger than me, but we're all in the same kind of neighborhood. And it's, it is an interesting juxtaposition to talk to older Gen X folks people who have been around, if they're literary, if they're here, there's something about us that is a similar quality that no matter where we'd have ended up, we would have, we sort of have the same kinds of experiences in a general sense. And talking to all of them and sort of looking at the world, there's been a realization in this small sample size of people that we are sort of at that point where it's time for us to get out of the way. Not that we don't have things to offer, because of course we do. It's ridiculous to think this isn't Logan's run. Like We're not renewing and (laughs) sending people into oblivion. But I remember, and I've talked about this on the program, I remember when I was young in my 20s and writing about Gen X and reading that Gen X literature and like just sort of living the experience of a generation that people basically thought were not really worthwhile. And so we just kind of went about our business. And this feels very much like that, right? Like our sensibility, if I can generalize a thing, is we tend our garden, but we don't tend to think about the world's garden, right? Because the world knows how to fix its garden, and we maybe don't. That was just this Gen X distrust of any centralized authority. And then you see what's happening around the country, and really for the last three and a half years, but the last week has been heartbreaking and amazing and wonderful and horrifying and all of the things that come with this. And just understanding that stories and things that my generation tells, Gen X, still important, still valid, still a lens that the world needs to see through. But there's this whole other world happening on the ground And it doesn't matter if you're out protesting with these folks. Like, there is, I think, a certain truth to the fact that you reach a certain age, and it's not that you become irrelevant. People aren't irrelevant. People are amazing and wonderful. And if you've learned anything about me on this show, it's that I can talk to people all day long about their lives. So it's not that. But there comes this way of thinking, and you get older, and it becomes... It may even be correct, right? Like, my lived experiences, these decisions have done well for me, so I can't argue that that's an incorrect set of decisions that I've made. 
but that's not the way that the world should be made, right? And that these big seismic sea changes need to come from people that are not like me, right? That are not in that generation. Uh, as, as much as we want to help, as much as we want to be a part of that, our biggest, our biggest contribution to this seems to be standing with providing resources for, providing emotional resources for, providing professional resources for, all of those kinds of people who are out in the streets marching across the country for a week just trying to get people to say, without couching it, Black Lives Matter. It's not always an easy conversation to have. And again, if you've been on the program or if you've listened to the program, these conversations happen here because I think that they're the natural outgrowth of a life lived in America. I don't know any other way for us to get through this other than for white people to start getting more comfortable having discussions about race and class and gender and all of those things and to understand that we're going to get it wrong a lot and to have the humility to take a moment and say, maybe I just got this wrong and not double down on the wrongness. <laughs> That's my hope. It's part of the reason that I love doing this show and, and so many people, both listeners, uh, but also people that have been on the program who have emailed and said the format of an hour to talk through things has been wonderful, even though they're not always thrilled that it's, I'm talking about them, but that it gives us time to stretch our legs and to maybe not be right the first time, but to be able to give ourselves the grace to have the conversation to try to get there. Right? You don't understand somebody's heart, but if you watch them long enough and if you're around them long enough, you can approximate it. And that's what I hope is happening in the hour. And that's why I want to keep talking to writers who write things different than I do, who come from different places, uh, who have different experiences. And I tell people, I don't read their books before they come on the show. I read nobody's book before they come on the show except Janelle Brown, and I don't apologize for that. Because I don't want to have a conversation with somebody whose book I read. I want to have a conversation with an author after I'll read the book. And when we get together for a beer or adult beverage or a nice meal at some point, I'll probably pull some stuff out and we'll do like the writer thing. Okay, you did this here for this reason. But that's not why I'm here. That's not why this program exists. And if it does anything or if it teaches us anything or if it's taught me anything, it's Carve out time in your life for these conversations. Carve out an hour. Sit down with somebody. I tell people about my letter writing project, which is my favorite thing to do because I sit down and think about one person for an hour or an hour and a half while I write them a letter. Conversations the same way. Give somebody your attention. Put the phone down. Have these conversations. When you do, I promise you, Things like what happened today with my conversation with Abigail Mann will come up, which is through, without knowing each other, because I know almost nobody on the program these days before they show up, but at the end of an hour, there's a connection there. 
I think Abigail and I, we could have chatted for a while, and, I, and we did chat after, after the interview was over, just because so many things of our lives have some analogous, like, oh, yeah, I understand this completely. Um, she's hilarious, and uh, her living situation is something that I can't even fathom right now, and I think you're going to enjoy that. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Abigail Mann. So the question that I ask everybody is, how are you doing where you're at? Well, it's a strange time at the minute. So context wise, we're sort of still in a lockdown and a pandemic where I'm at right now, uh, physically uh, in a I'm in a house with, with a household of 10 of us all sort of locked down together. And so the writing side of things has become... Um, yeah, a little bit more strange than normal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I sort of hide in the basement and put noise-canceling headphones on and try and sort of literally immerse myself in the in the in what I'm writing as much as possible. And where are you at? Uh, so I'm just sort of on the in in London, in between sort of Wimbledon and Kingston. Gotcha. So, yeah, near the city, but not in the city. Exactly, exactly. About sort of about half an hour away. Um, okay. But in a quite a green space for London. If we're sort of between Wimbledon Common and Richmond Park, so it's it's not a bad place to be. Yeah, minus the nine other people in the house. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah. This, is, this is one of those things like I live alone with my dog uh, and and I'm in an apartment in Pittsburgh, so I'm in the city, but we're a small city and it's really a green like my backyard is a seven hundred acre park and down the street is an 800 acre park but it's still just us and so for 23 hours a day for the last 48 days it like i've been talking to my dog like tom hanks and castaway um <laughs> and so for me i'm like god it would be great to have a couple people around and i'm sure people like you were like oh 48 days without other people sounds amazing <laughs> yeah that is pretty much it i did sort of i it's, it's a bit like because I'm doing working down in the basement, and then a kind of come up for air, and it does sort of feel like being underwater, and then just breaking the surface, and then there's just like noise <laughs> and people, and we're like, oh, I'm gonna go dive back down again. <laughs> yeah, I get that. Every like my apartment complex, a lot of people have dogs, and so we obviously have to take our dogs out. So, like, we've all sort of synced up or our dogs have synced up. So like we all kind of end up outside around the same time. And it's like, Oh, I get 97 seconds of human contact today. And then back yeah, in make the house. The most of it. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Although, you know, we're 15 feet apart because nobody wants to be by anybody. Uh, mm. So it's a weird, um, it's weird. I know for me, I was telling some folks just the other day, I've a couple years ago, I spent about two and a half months camping across Southern um, the su- the southern states in America. Well, you I didn't to practice I, then. Yeah, I didn't. I I kind of forgot that I just didn't talk to anybody for like, you know, you'd see people like if I had to go to the store to get provisions or something, but like I would only have to do that every five or six or seven days, mm. and um, and even that was minimal. And so I was sitting here counting, and I'm like, oh, f-, like I think it was like forty days. I'm like, 
oh, I got like another 30 days before I start getting stir crazy. Like I couldn't yeah. understand why I was like, okay, with all of this isolation. <laughs> well, like, yeah. And I think as, as well, I think writers are pretty well primed for isolation. Like everyone has been talking about how uh, much their lifestyles have changed. And I'm like, I actually feel like I'm leaving the house more now because it's restricted and I feel like I have to use it or lose it, you know? Right. Whereas before, whereas before I'd have just, it'd have been like, okay, it's day five now. I should probably like <laughs> get up and leave the house at some point. And I think there's something too about being a writer. And I've had this discussion multiple times on the program that I think being a writer at some point is about trying to understand the world around you. Like that's sort of, you're trying to process what's happening and then turn that into thoughts and then put that out in the world. Mm. And so there's a very, like, there's a very, like we control the structure of the things that we see. So when somebody says like, you can't do this, it's like, well, but now I'm going to do that to see what happens. Right. Like there's just that streak of like, ah, like if I'm going to understand the world, I can't just listen to what other people tell me. I actually have to go out and experience stuff. So if you tell me not to do it, this is true. Right. Like Mm. (laughs) there's a, like, uh, I don't know. It's sort of an anti-authoritarianism. Like, no, no, I'm going to do this because that's what I've been doing my whole career. So, yeah, that's so true. And you, you can really, you really sort of like feel it as well. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah. When um, when it has sort of had those times where I'm like, okay, I'm really up against it in terms of a deadline, and it's usually in the first draft, in the editing stage, it's like I could, I could quite happily not see anyone for ages. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Right. The groundwork has been done, but in, yeah. when you're sort of doing your first draft and it's, and you're like, okay, I've I've turned down social events because I feel like I'm up against it, and I'm wondering at this point why I can't think of what to write. It's like a lot of the time, things that you chat about when you when you meet up with people, or even if you just sort of out with eavesdropping because everyone knows that writers are notorious eavesdroppers like those things end up going in you get perspective and context and then that gets thrown in as well so it's it's like one feeds into the other yeah i i tweeted out a couple weeks ago i'm like uh i'm gonna punch the agent that 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 accepts the um sex and drinking in the time of the coronavirus memoir like, because, you know, like, the, like when you don't have stimulus in the world to go out and like see what's happening, like, I just think there's going to be a whole bunch of writers that are like, well, it'll be interesting to write about my life in the pandemic. Oh, definitely. Right? There'll be, there'll be probably thousands of people doing exactly yeah. that right now because no one has sat them down at the pub to say, actually, mate, I don't think that's the best idea in the world. You've been spending too much time in your own head. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, it's, I just was like, oh, my God. And I can already see the cover. Like, uh, I think I called it fucking and drinking in the time of the pandemic. I'm like, that's going to be a book. That's going to yeah. be a book. Somebody's going to put that out. It'll be a small press and people will be really excited by it. And it already annoys me. Yeah. <laughs> it's not even yeah. a thing yet. <laughs> Yeah, that is so true. The bar has been set horribly low. But, you know, it's funny. I I was getting ready to, like, enter some competitions. I've sort of stepped away. Like, I was editing my book and doing some other stuff. And I'm like, "Ah, I should probably flex my muscles and see if I can do, you know, some of these short essays and stuff. Uh, And that was before the pandemic. And I'm like, I had some ideas and I was kicking them around. and, And, you know, for me, I go out. And like, I'll take my notebook and just sort of like wander and, you know, sketch ideas out. Well, that doesn't happen anymore. And literally for like the last 30 days, I've just been saying like, we have to write these essays. 
And then I just sit in front of the computer and I'm like, I don't really know what to say. Right. Mm. Like nothing matters right now. <laughs> like, mm. you know, like my ruminations on whatever doesn't really matter. Everybody's locked down. The world sucks. Like, but that's yeah. a terrible essay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No one wants to read that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or maybe they do. I think it'll be, what is it? It's about five years, I think, after sort of traumatic events that people want to start dipping back into them again because the nostalgia kicks in. Yeah, and everyone's like, you know what? Things are a little bit too peachy at the moment. Right, um, right. Remember when? Let's step into some uh, pandemic lit. And, yeah. Uh... <laughs> the other terrible thing is there's going to be. I already know. Like when the lockdowns end, there's going to be a spate of listicles, like the ten things I learned about life from the pandemic. Like, oh yeah. god, yeah, no, no. <laughs> yeah, and it's a universal thing as well isn't it so yeah. you know we are not limited by borders uh for listicles yeah yeah i know unfortunately that is sort of the way of the world but i can already see a buzzfeed section on this <laughs> uh so enough of enough of the angry brand writer apparently i got up on the wrong side of the rider bed today <laughs> oh me too me too we're, in, we're, we're on the same page there so <laughs> let's start with uh where are you from Okay, um, so I'm from a place called Norwich um, in Norfolk. So I always describe this to people who aren't familiar with the geography of Britain, that it's uh, it's basically sort of the butt of England. If you imagine that Britain is like a, a person with the, <laughs> the, the rump at the bottom on the right. Um, and yeah, my whole family from there grew up in Norwich um, and then left when I went to go to university. So I went to Canterbury then. Wow. So uh, you said the whole family. So you got brothers and sisters. Uh, yep, I got um, an older brother who's a marine biologist, sort of by the coast there. Um, parents are from there, um, and basically the entire family goes back years. Uh, I, re- I recently did one of those um, ancestry DNA. Yeah, <laughs> as research actually for um, my second book, and I was we don't know anything about our family history, so. We, I was like really intrigued. My brother did it as well. Um, and it came back as us not only being, um, I think it was 86% British as far back as like the 1500s, but specifically from Norfolk. So like really? my, my family literally haven't left the county. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you are not that different. My family's hillbillies. They've been in the same place since uh, 1804. Uh, um, and I'm actually, it's funny, my book uh, is about my family. And one of my cousins just sent me a photograph, and this will tie into what you're saying, mm. of uh, Sir George Baker, who is my, it's the oldest relative we have a picture of, like a, of a painting. Oh, um, yeah. And he was born in Kent uh, uh, and was part of the royal court and was the father of the people, uh, my family, who were the first gunsmiths in America, who the queen sent over to make guns in America. Uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. 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 So we we left the county, but then we got to a county and then we stopped moving. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing. It's it's similar with us because the, the bit that wasn't 86% uh, specifically from Norfolk was um, uh, from the sort of the coastlines of, of Sweden and Norway. And so, I mean, this is my science wise. I don't know how much this ties in, but my theory is that like the Vikings came over, landed in Norfolk, which was like the closest place they could have gotten to. And then everyone got off the boat and said, yeah, he's all right. We'll stay. Good enough. Right. <laughs> which, 
and here, like as I've gone, I think we have our history back to like the 1300s. And I know for 200 years, my family was in Kent. So whoever was there were there for 200 years. And then when they got here, they pretty quickly got to the next place and were like, yeah, good enough. Yeah. You know, yeah, like, good. <laughs> yeah, which pretty much makes me, it's one of those um, sort of historical things when I hear stories like that, that makes me feel like, oh, so we really haven't changed that much in like 800 years. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. Like, we have better technology, but really that's it. No, people are inherently, I think, the same apart from <laughs> yeah. apart from a few details. But yeah, they are. Like, that's strange because you were in, from Kent, so they had, that's where I w- went to university. So University of Kent, that's where I was. Oh, really? Mm. Well, then I'm sure you've run across some of my family. Yeah, yeah, we we, we lived in a pretty old, old like student student digs in um in uh, Canterbury because the city is so oh, cool. old. It, the building yeah. that we were in was was I think it was 500 years old like our student house um so yeah so it was a cool it was a cool place to go to uni yeah it's yeah we'll get to England because I've spent some time there and it's just one of the like Americans every time we go there are like holy shit they don't knock anything down like here we no. knock everything <laughs> down like every 30 years like we need new stuff <laughs> uh, other than like the things that were already here like the Grand Canyon and only because we haven't figured out how to fill those up and make something on top of them <laughs> So, yeah, I like that. Uh, yeah, and it's it, yeah, it's true. That's why. <laughs> uh, so one brother, um, yeah. and then what do mom and dad do? Um, so dad is an accountant, and um, mom she's done a she's done quite a few things, but she's she sort of works in the the admin of my the high school that I went to. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so yeah, and then my I sort of my had my grandparents. They were they were all sort of worked in factories in in Norfolk making shoes. One was an auxiliary nurse. So it's like that, yeah, that kind of background, using yeah. your hands. Yeah. Working class, yeah. I have the same yeah. thing. So what were you like in, as you were going through school then? Because it sounds like you're surrounded by working class people that are doing mm. honest day living. Mm. Like, what are you yeah. like? Yeah, and I was, it's, it's the way that we still grew up, it's, it's, mum and dad, I think, were quite aware of what the, the the kind of upbringing that they had had and what they wanted to replicate and what they didn't um and so we were always encouraged to read a lot that is something that I always remember and to write writing was a big part as well like keeping keeping journals and diaries and but the presentation of them was really important <laughs> so it wasn't sort of like a hideaway in your bedroom thing it was a okay we've had breakfast we're getting out the journals and we're going to neatly write down what has what happened the day before really um, did, did they do that too uh they didn't practice it themselves but they made us do it <laughs> it's, you know it's really interesting like there's like i come from sort of a either an upper working class family or a lower middle class family, but we lived in the middle of nowhere. There was like 12 houses in my neighborhood um, and we were, you know, 40 minutes outside of the city. And, you know, as I've talked to people who have that sort of background, you either have parents that are like, you need to find a trade, right? Mm. Because they're like money. We know what money problems do. And they're very much about like find stability or you get people that are like, we want you to have a life that's different than ours. And yeah, so and that's, that's very much the sort of the, 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 my understanding of it anyway. Um, we, we didn't have like a huge amount of books that we owned in the house, but we were taken to the library most yeah. days. 
Yeah. And, and like, you know, you could, you're allowed to take eight out. We took eight out. It's that, it was that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And always being read to. And, you know, that, that, that was a really prominent part of, of, of us growing up. So that was like, whether you, like, that was just part of your, whether it's part of your DNA or not, like it was implanted within you early, like this reading and writing, like this is important. Mom and dad say this is important. Yeah, definitely. And I think they were, they, they, they were aware that if they pushed it too much, it would kind of go the other way and you wouldn't want to do it. Um, but I think the, it was one of the only, th- as long as we were doing outside, this was a rule that used to come into effect quite a lot. If you, if you could do it outside, it was fine. So it's things like video games. We didn't, we didn't have any video games yeah. in the house until we were like teenagers, but we could take books outside and read them in the garden, um, making up stories and games and mucking, basically just mucking about. Right. Um, it, well, if we what we now know outside. is keeping out of mom and dad's hair. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah. You, were only, you were only allowed inside to <laughs> use the toilet. Yeah. Um, and, and then and you're eat. out again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had, the summers were the same way. Like morning would come and mom would open the door and she was like, see you at dinner. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so definitely. As you're in high school, like are you social? Are you like into drama or sports? Or like what are you doing outside um, of just the reading and writing at the house? Yeah, no, I think, I think I was, I was always people, I kind of like, I, I tried a, a bit of everything, um, <laughs> and sports wise, not so much. Um, <laughs> but I mean, give me a writer that is a budding athlete at school and, uh, I will call you Lair. Um, but, uh, it was, yes, yeah, I had, I had, a, you know, good, good, good bunches of friends and my main sort of core friendship group, we all grew up on a diet of Harry Potter, uh-huh. um, we were that generation sort of the first book came out, I think when we were five or six and then the last one came out when we were 17. So it was really like our whole existence uh, uh-huh. revolved around it. Uh, we all f- uh, egged each other on. We all fed each other's obsession. Um, so I think that helped a lot because I, I mean, I, I used to be a teacher and I noticed that when kids are like 12, 13, if they were really heavy readers, they guess other things become priorities but I think because I had that core group of friends who were all obsessed as I was with it we didn't drop out of 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 that sort of um you know imagination reading being a sort of a thing that bonded us all together yeah and I think you know it's funny because I used to teach middle school my background actually before I got into this whole writing sham uh was uh my degree was in education and i taught middle school um with an emphasis on reading and writing and Mm. and one of the things that i used to tell other because i would let my kids read graphic novels or science fiction or anything they wanted they're they're 12 like look if you can get these kids into something like let them obsess about it like the best thing you can do the worst thing you can do is say well that thing that you love isn't real because yeah. (laughs) yeah like that's going to that's going to take it. I mean, I don't know if you still read for pleasure, but like reading still is a pleasure for me. Uh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Uh, you know, when I get if I turn on the TV for too long, I have to turn it off cuz I'm like, eh, I need to be in my head. I need to be in my head with somebody else's world instead of in my head about my own stuff. Yeah. Definitely. And I think when you're a teenager as well, I mean, that is such an important period and I think it's quite strange in a way because I mean reading is so solitary but when you do have something that has like a big fandom behind it that a lot of teenagers get into like depending on the generation it'll be something different but yeah. with, with us especially it was it was 
something you could do in isolation by yourself and really indulge in and then bring together in a social group um yeah it was it was completely brilliant it was oh yeah a a good time yeah and you know it's fan fiction is the other thing too right i ran a writing collective and we used to have fan fiction readings you know and so we would have we would have author readings and things like that but we're also like you know there are other kinds of writers and, and, and some of the people in my collective were like, we should host these. Um, so we started hosting fan fiction readings and they were always the most, they were always the most attended and people always dressed up. And I was like, well, this is oh, actually great. That. Right? Like, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I, I was thinking actually the other day about when I first started writing in a recreational way that I was really really enthused about and it was when I was 15 16 on a like a a Harry Potter role-playing forum and you would just continue storylines as a character and that I, I spent hours on that site like hours and I think that is if I could pinpoint it that is the time beyond school assignments uh that I was flexing, you know, the writing muscles was doing um Harry Potter fan fiction as Cho Chang. <laughs> yeah. Well and it's you know, I, when I taught writing in, at, at the university, and even when I work with young writers, I always tell them I can't teach you how to write in a in a classroom. There's nothing I'm gonna teach you in 16 weeks that's gonna make you a writer. Like mm. you have to read, you have to be involved in the world, you have to, you know, sort of be emotionally connected to yourself and other people. And then you have to write and let other people see it <laughs> like yeah. and, you, and you do that long enough if you do all those things like you'll sort of yeah there's structures and tools that I can teach you but that's like tools of the trade to be a writer you have to do what you did at 15 right which is go into those forums and say here's my presentation mm. and then see what happens with that yeah definitely and I think it's with this particular site as well that we that I me and a few of my other friends were on um you they had they split up like stories by terms these like you know fictional like dated calendar terms and you had to accrue 8,000 posts to be allowed into the next term wow and I was thinking like nowadays if I try 8,000 posts on a forum over the course of like eight weeks that's a lot so I must have been I don't know much much in time but I must have been writing a lot on there Right. Was this before Potterverse? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, before it was all copyrighted. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, that, when I was at Wired, I think, was when they launched that. And I remember there being... It was sort of in my beat, and there was some writing about that. Uh, so that was... Yeah. It, Lucas has the same thing, right? Like, you can make short films with Star Wars, but there's all kinds of restrictions. It can't be commercial, blah, blah, mm. blah. But if you go and look at some of the short films that people have done, they're amazing yeah they're amazing mm. um and it becomes like at least with lucas stuff that became people's resume like well i'll make this short film it'll go here i can't ever release it but i can then go to a producer and go well, i did this with four dollars <laughs> definitely yeah definitely and in the, the thought of 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 that being like sniffed out in any way is just absurd because you i mean if you i'm thinking of like adult writing contexts but I mean, there are whole there are whole imprints at publishers that are dedicated to, for instance, like Doctor Who fiction. That right. they'll, they'll employ writers to write Doctor Who fiction or Star Wars fiction, and so you know, it's it's 
it's a lot of people's like main source of income is writing fan fiction. It is. There's actually a piece in the Guardian a couple months ago about the big poetry war right now, and I do not get involved in the world of poetry because when the stakes are so low, everything is so, you know, everybody is yeah, so... Yeah, people are mean. Gung-ho. Well, there's some established poets that are writing about the poets who have gotten their um, followings on Instagram. Oh, I right? know exactly the piece you're referring yeah, to. Yeah, <laughs> and I just read it the other day. I literally tweeted it. And, and I think I didn't tweet the, when the stakes are so low, because in my writing collective, in our readings, they were, the sort of subtext was everybody but poets. Because poets have readings everywhere. You can't throw a rock without having a poetry reading. But it's mm. really hard to find a table read for a play or a graphic novel reading or fan. So all, like, we would do readings for everybody else. So it sort of became a running joke in the collective that, you know, poets would be like, can I read? And I'm like, mm, no. So when I saw that in The Guardian, I'm like, it's funny that the big literary war today is literally the smallest segment of the sort of yeah. book selling market. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and I would think that the poets would be happy that they're in. Yeah. I'm sure the poetry on Instagram is different than classically structured, whatever, but who gives a shit? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's, it's all about sort of like audience uh, readership and how you're able to sort of get it out there. I mean, and, and if that means that it's helped, helped you on the way to, gaining a publisher if that's what your ambition is yeah. it doesn't you know the, the, the route that you took to get to that point if someone else didn't think of doing that themselves I think that tends to be where the argument comes down to yeah and and frankly people that are going to the one are probably not going to the other like just no. because somebody gets a book deal doesn't mean that took a book deal from you yeah there's a, there's a seat at the table for everyone yeah and if not like you know, not th- write better or do like do better stuff or just keep going and like build your thing. Like s- take the lessons from what they did and apply it to your world. Like it, it just, I was laughing as I read that because I thought, well, that's not the literary feud that I wanted, but I guess that's the literary feud that we have. <laughs> <laughs> I much prefer when like Steven Pinker takes down Malcolm, Malcolm Gladwell. Like I prefer that way. I don't know if you've ever read any of that, but yeah, yeah, uh, no, it's to be honest, any literary feud. I just, I love reading them all. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, God, this is like gossip that's in my, in my world. I like it. Right. And, 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 and they've done it in newspapers and magazines. Like they're just, having a drunken argument in public. And that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, that a very small portion of like the wider population can have any frame of reference for. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. No, no. So uh, you, you got the Harry Potter in high school. Um, mm. Mom and dad are making you read in journal. You're sort of down in, in the butt of England. And yeah. uh, you decide to go to university. So when you go, what's your plan? Um, I applied for a number of sort of strange, I suppose they're not not conventional courses. Um, I wanted to do English literature, but I wanted there to be writing involved. And I was also like quite keen into philosophy at the time. So Mm -hmm. um, a couple of courses I applied for were like the philosophy of literature. um, And I did not get through the interviews for those. Um, <laughs> there was one uh, one at a university where a, a lecturer asked me um, if literature could be art and writing. And I, wow, I did not know how to answer that one. Um, so but That seems like a stupid question. I mean, to me, 
in hindsight, yes. Um, and that would probably not be the answer that would get you in either. <laughs> no, no. I was like, that's a very, very broad, yeah. uh, broad, broad statement to to try and tackle. Um, I was not prepared for it, and I didn't get asked a single other question. So it was a long trip for very little reward. That, but that's um, ridiculous. That's ridiculous. I, I it did have this sort of feeling of the the lecturer arrived at the interview looked around the room saw a picture on the wall and thought art words that'll be my question <laughs> <laughs> do you think that it's, and i hear that as somebody who's from a working class like i kind of have a chip on my shoulder about that stuff like mm. i got into a good graduate school and so i was sort of like the poor kid there mm. like i hear that question as oh i went to i went to a private school right and now i'm mm. gonna i'm gonna see what your bona fides are like, do you know the answer to this question? I do think that there is something in that. And I mean, I mean, a lot of people would say, oh, it's, you know, it's easy to say that when you didn't get in. I, but um, no. there's, there, I mean, there was that one. Um, and I do think it's important to talk about the rejections that happened along the way because they all funnel into what <laughs> happens in the end. Because yeah. um, I, inter- I interviewed it um at Cambridge as well, and it was a similar sort of, of, of experience. <laughs> you were prepared for the rejection. <laughs> yeah, the questions are you know ab- abstract questions that I I didn't have the experience to to tackle on the spot like a like in a performative way. Um, so you know, I, after you know after that, and I'd I did end up going to to the University of Kent, and I had a really good time there, and my. Uh, course was a sort of English English and American literature and creative writing so it mm-hmm. kind of crossed a, a few things yeah. um but and I've thought about this a lot that the creative writing side of things in my first year I got on really well with and then in the second and the third year really fell out of love with it and it took a, about three or four years after that for, for me to come back around to the idea of doing it again um, what happened I th- I think it was it, it was a, a good fifty percent, and if I'm being honest, maybe sixty or seventy percent my like a, a me problem, and maybe like a thirty forty percent the teaching of it problem. Um, I think between sort of sixteen and eighteen, I you you end up reading a lot more of like the classic literature. Right. I'm doing I'm doing sort of air quotes, <laughs> right? You know? um, but. I think I had sort of convinced myself in my head that good literature had to be a certain way yep. and the writing of that literature, if you were going to do it as a, as like a, as an ind- individual um, also had to be in that same vein. And yep. I mean, it's no secret. No, this is not going to surprise anyone. Uh, if you've been reading Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights and you try and write to that sort of standard, one, you're about 150 years too late. And also it's just <laughs> not achievable. Um, <laughs> so I think I had a lot of pretension uh, going into that course about what it should or shouldn't be like. Um, Do you think and- you had the pretension without... So I this is the... The argument that I make is that there's two kinds of writers. There's people that get MFAs and are like classically trained in the canon and mm. could answer that is literature, art, and words or whatever bullshit you said. They could answer that in complete earnestness yeah. and and believe the thing that they said and have references to the Bible and literature from around the world. And mm. then there are people that come to it from like the storytelling. I've just been a reader and I've been working my way through this. Yeah. 
And so yeah, I, I was definitely uh, I was definitely the former to begin with and then quickly realized that actually <laughs> the stuff that I'm writing is nothing like the stuff that I would I've been reading in a classical sense, all the Victorian literature, 18th century literature, all that sort of stuff. Um, but it took me up until like my third year of uni to realize that. And I felt like I'd wasted that time just being cynical about the act of sort of teaching it and learning it um, and not being open to basically experimentation. Yeah. And I, I don't know if the, the sort of the school system and setup of you do a piece of work, you get graded for it, you get told whether it's good or bad, and then you move on to the next thing. And because we were being graded um, <laughs> and we were turning in things and I was doing very little experimentation outside of those assignments, that was, I think, came from a complete lack of maturity on my part um, and not being perhaps ready to, to enter into that way of, 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 of learning. Um, because, I mean, I was 18 and uh, had not lived a life yet. <laughs> right. But that gets back to the thing that I always tell young writers is that I can't teach you how to write in a classroom. Like, yeah. I, like you just, you, as soon as you put a constriction on something and you're like, you have to do this in this set of time mm. and you don't have time to rework it. What piece have you ever written that's been any good that you haven't reworked multiple times? Exactly. And I, and I, up until I'd say very, very recently, like when I was doing my first book, I would say that, uh, the rewriting and the editing part, I just thought was proofreading. <laughs> that is it. Yeah. I thought, oh, I'll check it. I'll check it over for missing commas, and then I'll send it in. Like, what was I thinking? Yeah, that was depressing when you went through it, and we're like, oh. I was like, oh wow, I really got to unpick this one and do it again. <laughs> I, when John and I did our first book, my writing partner, uh, we did our first book. I've told people we probably have a whole nother book of just shit we threw away. Mm. Like my favorite chapter is not in the book. It was 16,000 words. I wrote it. It was brilliant. It's a brilliant chapter. It really is a brilliant chat. Didn't fit in the book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I completely agree. Yeah. It's, and it's a, it's a, just a horrible surprise, but then I'm at the stage now where I'm, I'm seeing a lot of like light and sort of, you know, really good and useful and enjoyable parts of it. But I think at university, when you've got that combined with, your other essays that you've got to hand in. To right, subject. right. Uh, it's hard to split the two disciplines apart. Um, and then the, the other aspect of it, I suppose, was I found that the stuff that I was writing was, uh, I'd say, a little sort of like on the positive, uplifting side of, 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 of genre, if it was going to be classed into a genre. Um, a lot of the stuff that my peers were writing was, was very heavy and raw and... Uh, morbid and I found that if I if I tried writing like that which I did um I just felt like miserable all the time and so (laughs) I was like I was like I write misery to live with um and so I didn't want to write like that um and I but then I suppose the more uplifting side of stuff that I was naturally producing um was not deemed as serious enough yeah. for the course and I suppose that's that then fed into what I now know is like a wider a wider debate to do with uh what's commercial writing and what's not um some people naturally I suppose will produce stuff that's a little more commercial than they than, than somebody else might and that I suppose was the seed of that debate 
was was started off when started off at university. It, I don't know if you've read Stephen King's On Writing, but it's, yeah, right. It's it's this brilliant book, and I've referenced it all the time. But one of my favorite parts of that book because. I loved his short stories. I never liked his novels because he didn't know how to end them. Like it was always some like weird, like, and then alien or whatever. And I'm like, ah, why did I just read a thousand pages for this? But he wrote in the thing. He's like, I know exactly the kind of writer I am. He's like, you know, I write good short stories. I struggle sometimes with these, but like, there's a thing that I write that people like. And so I do it and I'm good at doing that thing. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, shit, now I love him, right? Because he's a writer that like understands exactly who he is, understands what he's not good at, but understands the thing that he is good at, people love. And they love Stephen King. And he's really good at writing Stephen King novels. And you know, like when I was younger, I was like, ah, bullshit. And then I got older and I was like, man, I wish we all had that. <laughs> that's exactly, and that's exactly the sort of the transition that you go through, isn't it? When you're younger and you're like, oh, you know, oh, Stephen King, you know, everyone likes Stephen King. And it's like, yeah, do you ever want to sell books in the future? Like, (laughs) listen to the man. (laughs) And it was just great to hear him, like, or read him saying, like, yeah, look, I know exactly what I am. And and I have that conversation about me with people all the time. Like, I had a career at a big magazine for five or six, seven years. Like, I had a, it was very nice, and I did what I did. Um, and I sort of know, I'm like, oh, I'm like a middling writer, you know, like I know what I do well, um, and I can produce that when I need to, but I just decided I wanted to do other stuff, um, Mm. because mine was never going to sell 5 million copies every time a book came out, right? Yeah. Um, And that's, and that's the thing I think that you realize you're like, what, what's the output and what do I want to get out with this? Yeah. Um, and if it is, oh, you know, uh, you want to share it with a writing group uh you want to really nail into something that is uh un- unique people haven't seen before you know crack on but if, right. if 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 your priority is a little uh different and they're all as valid as each other then you do have to think about those things consciously when it comes to what you're what you're yeah. producing the business of writing is different than being a writer it, yeah it's yeah just, it is <laughs> yeah it's like the yeah, the author identity compared to sort of the the business i mean talking about the business side of books i mean it's not it's not a it's not a um popular subject i guess because we do we put so much emphasis on the on the writer as 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 like the the artist uh, right. side of things <laughs> right. but you know they're all thinking about it Stephen King's thinking about it uh J.K. Rowling is thinking about it <laughs> yeah. and every author that I know that has successful books is like well when that book came out I sat down with my agent in the publishing company and we said what ideas can we sell like that's what every meeting begins with like I have some ideas they have some ideas and they try to settle on an idea for a book that the author can write like mm. it's just yeah, that is, it's, it's, it's the, it is, yeah, that's true. And I mean, I say all this about the, about the study of, of, of the writing at university, but um, there was a short story that I did. I think it was in my, it was in my first year there, um, sort of about an, an older couple who had not seen each other for a number of years because uh, after, after the war and he had moved to America and come back again. Um, and it was sort of a, a, a nice sort of, older people reuniting uh heavy on the on the on the on the dialogue um and I forgot about it for years and then the first book that I started a couple of years ago I realized it was in essence the same story from back when I had done it at uni 
and I had sort of done this big old dance around it, looked at loads of other things, tried to get tempted by the things, and I've just come back to the same point. <laughs> but then actually had the sort of experience to commit to it in a, in a slightly different way. It was a short story, now it's a novel, and loads of other things have come into play as well. So, you know, as much as I think, oh, I really wish I had done things differently when I was studying creative writing at uni, like it, it did have an impact whether or not I realised it at the time. Well, and that's part of the reason I do this show is because uh, one of the things I always tell people is every time I interview a writer, I already know their story because you come to this for the same reason. It's the chapters that I don't know, right? Like the Mm. chapters of your life are different than the chapters of everybody else's. And I can't tell you how many people, I mean, me as well are like, ah, shit. The line from where I started to where I got to was not straight. But as I look back on it, also it was inevitable. Like that was the way I had to go. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. So when you leave university, what happens? What world do you go into? Um, I go into, um, uh, so we, we, in Canterbury, I did, a, I did a master's there in the end um, in uh, 18th century literature. So you stayed um, in that even though you were like, yeah. oh, my voice. Good, good call. Yeah, yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Um, and I, I really enjoy, I really enjoyed doing that. Because the historical, like the, the early 1800s, like I could talk about it for years and years, which I will not do today. Um, uh, Brit- I'm assuming British literature? <laughs> yeah, Brit- British literature. So um, One of my favorite teachers in college was, she's an 18th century British literature scholar. scholar. It's a good period. It's a good period. Um, and I, yeah, I, I loved it. And I, I did that and I finished it. And uh, a few, a few of my um, supervisors were saying, you know, you know, you're going to go on to do, to do your PhD. And I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> um, <laughs> I only like 18th century British literature yeah. to a master's level. <laughs> to a master's level. And then, I'm, and then I'm good. And then I'm good essentially reading uh, historical fiction um, that's like contemporary. So essentially it's historical fan fiction. And that was where <laughs> I really, I, I was like, that's, that's where the love and the passion comes from. Um, throw me a period drama and I am a happy, happy person. Um, but yeah, no, I left that, moved to to um, London and uh, I, I did a I was doing internships basically it's just quite a common common tale uh, in this part of the world um, trying to figure out which of the many different industries that you can apply in an English degree to um, which it turns out it's, it's, it's all of them and it's also none of them right um, <laughs> that is the most accurate description <laughs> uh, so I was doing I was doing social media um, for uh, an app company oh my um, god with a master's it, in 18th century british there had to be moments where you were like what the hell um yeah and when you read it back to me like that brad it really doesn't make me think twice about my life choices <laughs> um, <laughs> but i mean it was that it is as much at the time and i wasn't getting paid either i'll just i'll just add that in um, well that that makes it better yeah, I mean, I was I did, I did it for I think four no, it was longer than that. It was like five or six months, and I didn't get a wage, and I got paid expenses only um, during that time. Uh, I got, this is I I don't even know if it's illegal now, but I feel like it should be. Um, that was horrendous at the time, like truly yeah. awful. Um, but the whole premise of that job formed the premise of, of my first book, The Lonely Fajita. Um, that but, is sort so of, it was inevitable. It was inevitable. Yeah, it's, 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 
I mean, and I have I have to say this. Um, there, if any coincidences are um, and completely uh, a surprise and and in no way reflect reality. Um, but there are a lot of things that happened in that workplace that fed into the book because and a lot of it was actually stranger than fiction I, I i was listing some things i experienced doing that internship to um my agent just before she was my agent um when we had our first meeting and she was like yeah you can't put that in the book because that is too that is too much <laughs> <laughs> this is not a thing that we can generalize and say this could happen anywhere yeah yeah it was yeah so that was quite formative really and then after that I was quite jaded with the whole um uh, sort of working for um companies I suppose and, and <laughs> that don't pay did, you? yeah that yeah. seems like don't pay me, yeah. yeah that feels like a proper jading <laughs> yeah it took, took six months to realize that um <laughs> so how so you're working on the book while you're there or you worked on the book no this is this is completely there is no writing going on here at all um I was just doing this internship okay I, I didn't give up on that that would be silly it was like I wasn't getting paid I wanted to get paid um so I did a teacher teacher training um in London as well uh qualified to be a teacher still not writing at this point um I'm blogging um I'm sort of writing I suppose you'd call it yeah create creative nonfiction. um yeah. but I'm not writing fiction and yeah. I th- I, I think mean, as a nonfiction writer, I count creative nonfiction. Yeah, but I suppose <laughs> it was more in the in the story in the you know oh I went to um, a nice park and gotcha. here's pictures and here is what happened in the day you know it, it was yeah. it was sort of 2014 15 when everyone and their mums was blogging. Yep. Um, so and I, I did enjoy doing that and I it, this all of this these these years I suppose between leaving university and then actually starting to write a book are like the tiniest of baby steps towards actually committing to writing. Um, Let me ask because it, it this happens a lot, but I think it ha- like do you think it's because you came from that sort of working class hands background where it's like this is not really a job. Like this is not writing is not really a job. You can't really make a career out of doing this. And so do you well, think? Yeah, was- because the, 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 where, like what was the path? I had, I had no idea about any of it. My priority right. at the time when I left university was get a job that pays right. and, and one that you could be reasonably good at in becoming an English teacher. I really enjoyed it. It was incredibly stressful. And the reason why I ended up leaving, um, <laughs> What but, year did you teach? Uh, what what taught, age group? I taught um, between age 12 and 18. Yeah, so we, that's, I have a secondary, so I taught, that's essentially our middle school to high school. Right, yeah, exactly. So that was, yeah, I was doing secondary. and That's rough. It, it, oh, yeah, it was like, I did, it, I did it in London, and I did it up north in Yorkshire as well. Um, Which do you like? I like 12 and 13 way better than I like the the high school teenage kids yeah we have like I don't know actually because there's the younger ones that have come straight from like our primary so they've 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 they're the oldest in their sort of school of youngsters they come up to high school um and I like they're super super keen and also super nervous about everything and then you've got like the sweet spot age where they're sort of pre becoming really self-conscious 
as most teenagers are and are hugely creative and those were like they were my favorite kind of students yeah that was that the 12 and 13 i used to tell people they're smart enough to engage they have ideas but they still want you to hug them and they're still kind of terrified of adults like yeah. it's, you can, if you know how to manage that group, you can get that like hormonal craziness going in the right direction. It's so, but it's a lot of work. Like oh, I, did yeah, come home and, yeah. I did not come home and write at the end of the day. <laughs> oh no, no, not a chance, not a chance. I think, and that's where I think I, it's, it started. I was, I was thinking a lot about like the pedagogy of writing uh, and teaching writing to, with, with the kids basically. Um, and I hadn't done it myself. And I was just going back, I suppose, to what you mentioned before about, you know, why, why not just go straight into the writing? And, you know, was it to do with background and things? I didn't know anyone who was making money from writing or writing a book or how you would even go about getting things published. I started absorbing podcasts, uh, reading books, magazines, articles. Every time I wasn't teaching I was. I took like the Hermione Granger approach to it, where I was like, if I read all there is and listen to everything there is about publishing and writing, then maybe that will limit my, um, the like the danger zone of trying at something a lot, losing a lot of money in the process, right, and then still not succeeding, um, which you know, is <laughs> is is very much the playing it safe approach, I guess. It's doing all the research first before actually doing the practice. <laughs> yeah. But there's nothing um, wrong with it. I did the other thing. Like I just ran off the side of the cliff and jumped and I'm like, how far could it be down? <laughs> <laughs> it just like, it works completely, you know, equally as well for so many people. Yeah. Um, it, it did not work so well for me, but like, I didn't know any other way. <laughs> like the idea of trying to research how to be a writer, how to be a writer never crossed my mind. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I, I suppose if I had, if I, if there had been people around who, oh, you know, your auntie or so-and-so's um, work colleague does that, then I, I would have asked them if they'd have been right. there. Right. And, but who knows those people? Nobody knows those people. Well, yeah, exactly. And so <laughs> I, I was like, well, I'll, do, I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll listen to podcasts on the way to work. I'll listen to them at lunchtime and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. But it was the teaching the kids um, and I was asking them to do creative writing tasks and I was thinking, this seems really silly that I'm asking them to do it and I'm not even trying it myself. So when I set them off to do something in a class, I'd do it at the same time as them. Um, sneaky. That's sneaky. Yeah. And then when they sort of read some of their responses, then I'd share a little bit of my response. And I mean, one, I think it helped with our sort of like teaching and learning relationship. But yeah. I also, I was like, actually, this is really fun. And I've been building this up in my head for so long because I, because I'd done all the research and I was like, Oh, I'll start it tomorrow, you know, because I, because I've made it a big thing. Yeah. Um, but then when I sort of was, uh, I was researching an idea for a book, which, which is not the book that I ended up writing, but I was basically doing a dress rehearsal for writing a book, um, whilst I was teaching. And I was talking to the students about, about what I was doing. Um, and they were really, really supportive, like the best cheerleaders you could possibly think of. And all of the problems that I had built up in my head about reasons why I couldn't do it or couldn't make it viable, they didn't have 
the life experience to question and so when they when I was saying oh you know I maybe one day I'll write a book they were like well why what what why won't why wouldn't you and I was like god you guys are really clever yeah yeah kids (laughs) can be annoyingly just like cut through the bullshit like oh yeah yeah (laughs) because I'm a little tired that's why and they're like that's not a thing (laughs) yes yeah they're like well you could do it you could you could you could like try it over like one of them said to me like oh Christmas holiday's coming up why don't you like try it for like two or three days I was like damn it you're you're Right, You've got a real clarity of thought here. <laughs> right. Literally parroting back all the stuff that you tell them. Like I hate when people use my words against me. <laughs> yes, yes, completely. So I was like, I've got to start listening. I've got to start listening to them properly and and everyone else. And yeah, so you that, start writing the book. Yeah, yeah, and we we were coming to the end of uh, we were up in up in Yorkshire for a set period of time. We were coming to the end of it, and it was the choice. I had the choice of right. Do I apply straight away for another teaching job? I'd been saving up as much money as I could over the over the couple of years that I was there. Um, my partner was coming back down to London to, to take up his his job. And I was like, I've got a window here where if I throw myself into this for like 10 months, I could probably afford to do it for 10 months if I don't spend like anything. Um, and then I've got a deadline. Whatever happens at the end of 10 months, I'll either crack on with it again or I'll be like, it was an, it, at least I gave it a good stab. Um, but then I, in that 10 months, I wrote the, the draft of the first book, submitted it into this, uh, comedy women in print prize. Um, and then it just sort of escalated from there and the 10 month deadline then came and went and I was still, it was still going in the right direction. So that was, a the, that pocket of time, that window. And this is just like, extended. what, two years ago? Uh, yeah, so I finished teaching in 2018, uh, July 2018, yeah, and then started the book in September, um, got long-listed for the prize in, when was it, um, end of March, uh, came runner-up in July, and then had my publishing deal in the September, so yeah, it was like basically a full year and those sort of things happened in, in that order in that year. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, I think it's, <laughs> I think it's, um, it's quite, a, uh, quite rapid, I, I, I would say. Yeah. Well, it is minus the, you know, how many years did it take you to get to that point? Yeah, exactly. That was all, <laughs> that was all fe- it was all feeding in. Well, the whole, everything was feeding, feeding into it. Basically. Yeah, my friend Janelle's book just came out, and it got optioned. It's her fourth book. Just got option for Amazon Prime. Nicole Kidman's doing it. The book's going to blow up, right? It's going to be huge. And the last thing I said to her was, congratulations on your 20-year overnight success, right? Like, yeah. you know, I knew her back when we were journalists, you know, <laughs> back at, at, in the aughts. She wrote for a place called Salon.com and left there and started working on her novels. And the third one did really well. And this one is blowing up. And it's just like, it's one of those mystical things that like writers just kind of appear in front of people. And so there is this natural tendency to think like, oh, this, you know, work of genius must have come out of nowhere. And it's like, well, yeah, after 20 years of getting there. Right? Like, yeah. Uh, it's like the first 19 years is pushing up the hill and the last year is the sled ride down. Exactly. <laughs> and it's just the things, things can click, just click. And it might be, it might be a, t- a timing thing that's clicked or like you, someone, I know, I know an author who's um, 
she was writing one genre, switched to a different genre, and then that clicked. You know, yeah. she wasn't she wasn't doing badly before, but she was doing really well now. Um, and it's, it's like those sorts of things. And I think with me, it was like I was trying to write I was trying to write a historical novel, and I started writing it and realized that I I could not do it. I was it was not the book for me. And then through a, about a month of free writing, um, I was like, this is always coming out in first person. It's always coming out with like a bit of a comedy humor sort of underlying the whole thing and there's a bit of a cynicism to it uh i'm just gonna ba- i'm gonna re- reconstruct a story that fits this voice that for yeah. me is much easier to write than the historical thing i was doing before it's, and then that was clear like that was that was a good a good decision because it 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 was hitting the right notes after that when before it was like uh pulling teeth and i was a complete misery to be around because i was just frustrated constantly right and writing stuff that was terrible yeah, yeah, yeah. I read it back and I was like, this is, yeah, truly, truly awful. Yeah. It's um, one of the things that took me a long time because I, you know, coming out, similar to you, like I don't have a, well, you actually went and got a, my English degree is communication. So it was English, drama, theater, but it was with a teaching emphasis because my dad was like, well, you want to be a writer, maybe have a backup plan, right? Yeah, so I, yeah. I did that. So, so I always felt like there was part of, part of my knowledge is missing. I don't have the sort of deep understanding of structure and canon. And I've gone back and tried to teach it to myself. But then I went into the professional world. I went to a professional graduate school for journalism. Um, and so my writing was... Stri- like they strip all of voice out of that, right? Because there's mm-hmm. a very specific kind of, you know, magazine voice. And it's just not mine. That's not my voice. The things that I write that people tell me are the best things that I write are when they say, I can hear you telling me the story, which makes sense because I'm from an oral culture of people that sit around a campfire and bullshit all night. And right, that's exactly, literally yeah. where I learned. And so the last like five part of the reason I left the professional world was, well, I need to strip all of that stuff away. And every time I tell myself like, don't like, don't write a, a dependent clause as a sentence. And I'm like, but that's actually the structure and flow. And when you read it, it sounds the way I want it to sound. Right. Um, and yeah, I always have to tell my copy editors, like if you see a dependent clause, it, uh, uh, it's probably right. <laughs> like I'm, <laughs> I'm a professional enough to know what a full sentence is. So if you mm. see a bunch of those, like don't start making them into subject verb object, please. <laughs> Cause yeah. ruin everything. So I can only work with a certain amount of copy editors who now know like, Oh shit, this hillbilly is going to go off the rails. Um, but all but that's that is, what, that's what makes you unique, right? That's like, if someone was to read something against another piece that someone else had written and they could identify it as being something authored by you, that's the... That's I mean, voice, that's, right? Yeah, exactly. In the same way that that was sort of my point was like, you tried to do one thing until you figured out like, oh, I am actually not that as a person. No, right? yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I am sardonic and a little bit cynical, kind of funny, and, and that's the voice. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's, this is so true. It's so hard for writers because I don't even know why. I think that I think because there's a thing called a canon, and so many people that teach us English are like, "You must read, you know, Stephen Crane." And I'm like, ah, "Fucking do I? Mm-hmm. Like, do yeah. I really need to know Ezra Pound? Like, whatever." Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Ezra Pound did footnotes, and he did them worse than you know. David Foster Wallace's are funny. Ezra Pound's are just like pretentious, so I don't care. 
Yeah, yeah. And the thing <laughs> is, there will and and there will be someone who does care about them. Yeah. And, you know, that's the that's that's the thing. You if you were pleasing absolutely everybody, you wouldn't be pleasing anyone. No, I guess. But my point is, I think Ezra Pound and the footnotes and Stephen Crane and that kind of stuff. We we are told that's the benchmark, mm, mm. right? And not this other stuff. Um, and not that every piece of commercial literature is brilliant, but like there's, you know, people write good books. My friend Janelle's thrillers are really good, and I have that's, a sense that's 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 very true. And I think that's one of the things going back to like the the university stuff that used to grate on me a little a little was they would use examples from incredibly successful commercial fiction that uh they would be putting up on a board as a reason why the writing in it was poor right and i i sort of okay i understand this is a learning point but that is one of that that is the most successful book of the whole of last year worldwide right, right. And I've told people, you know, I, I've read Janelle. I always talk about Janelle just because I've known her and I love her work. But like, I, I, because I've read all her books and because I've known her life and because she writes about the area like Silicon Valley and California that I know, mm-hmm. I've seen the progression of the four books. And I'm telling you, the plotting of the last two, and not to get too nerdy, I, I would put that plotting up against anybody, anybody. Yeah. Because I generally can tell what's going to happen just because I'm a writer. And like, you sort of know, like, oh, this person's doing this thing to me or whatever. And, and I can't with her. And every time I get done, I'm like, how did I not see that? Which is just a master craft to me of like, oh, she literally put the cards on the table and then just kind of hid them without hiding them. And I got to the end and was like, ah, oh, like you did it again. Um, yeah, that's like a real master of the craft, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Like, so don't tell me I can't read her stuff and like, yeah, it's, you know, it's not quite beach read but like I read it in a sitting, 450 yeah. pages. I mean, I sat for five hours and read it, but like, <laughs> but that's the sign of a good book to me. I, I completely agree. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and it's that, that's the thing. If you, if you were the, the kind of person who recreationally you go and watch operas every weekend, you know, and other people generally, I would say, most people have a very sort of varied and diverse way of sort of seeking entertainment. And so that goes the same for books as well. I mean, right. generally, I think you, people have a capacity for, for stuff that is incredibly challenging or incredibly dark or such and such. And there's a whole spectrum of fiction that they would be diving into. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I will end with this. Walt Whitman is the only poet that I read and I am large. I contain multitudes is the thing that I just think of. Right. It's like when I see people saying like, this is the way that it is. I'm like, well, like maybe on a Saturday, but maybe on a Thursday, I'm going to pick up a, you know, a a silly crime novel, you know, and like, and I'm going to enjoy that and learn because I don't know about that genre. So as I'm reading it, I'm also like, Oh, okay. Like, Mm. And as it turns out, I'm more of a pulp writer than I am anyway, right? I may not like crime novels, but I'm like, ah, shit. You know, like, <laughs> I should probably read these because the voices in these sound a whole lot like me. Oh, yeah, for sure. And you learn so much from reading these different genres as well. Yeah. Well, so The Lonely Fajita, the ebook is out, uh, right, in a couple yeah, of weeks. Yeah, soon, 14th of May. Uh, and then the um, audiobook and then the paperback's coming out in August. 
Yes, that's right. Yes. Um, so that's great. So I'm now looking forward to that because I love, uh, not that it's based on anything real, but you know, <laughs> I did work at Wired at the dawn of all of this stuff. So I'm always really interested in like takes on that culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I enjoy those settings. And then you're working on another one, which I won't make you talk about because that's the worst thing in the world is to talk about a, a work in progress. But Yeah, I'm going to go straight from, from this podcast to back, back to the screen <laughs> to editing it. So. Uh, but so The Lonely Fajita is not the last. It is the first, which is Yes, good. it is the first. It is the first. And then the second one, we're sort of, it's airmarked for, for March of next year. So not too long to wait after this one. Yeah, so yeah, you better get back to work. And I'm very yeah. sad. And <laughs> next time we talk, I'm going to have to figure out how the hell you end up in a house with ten other, nine other people because that is crazy to me. Yeah, we'll leave that a mystery, shall we? <laughs> well, Abigail, it was great talking to you, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks so much, Brad. It's been a real pleasure. Well, there you have it, people. That was Abigail Mann. Her book, The Lonely Fajita, is out now on ebook. It's coming out in print in January, so you should be an amazing literary citizen and go get that now. Read it, leave a review for her, and then buy the print book when it comes out. So I hope you enjoyed the show today. I know we're in the midst of some heavy stuff right now, and I can't promise you that we're not going to be talking about some of this stuff as the show goes on because it's just too important not to. But we're also here to talk about books and literature and writing. On June 26th, we are having our follow-up happy hour and book club with Janelle Brown, whose book Pretty Things is tearing up the bestseller chart. And in July, we only have a couple spaces left. Uh, Louise Fine, whose book People Like Us is out. It's Daughter of the Reich in America. Um, So that's July 24th. If you go to my website, thebradking.com, you will see signups for both of those. While you're there, you can sign up for the newsletter, You can go to bookshop, buy books. You know the routine. Most important thing you can do with us is leave a review wherever you listen to this and share it with your friends. So it's day 86 of the pandemic. We are slowly opening back up. We are also trying to undo centuries worth of issues. Those things aside, carve time out for yourself. Take care of you. Take care of your emotional health. Make sure your friends are okay. Spend an hour every day just trying to calm down, not getting on social media. And until the next time, I will see you around the internet. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. 
That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.